Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're coming to the end of this sermon series through this amazing final book of the Bible, the Apocalypse. Um, it has, it's the first time I've ever studied the book of Revelation, and it has been incredibly, incredibly inspiring, if that's the right word. It's been incredibly formative for me as I am, you know, my eschatology, eschatology is our belief about the end times. It's um, my eschatology, eschatology is very much under construction. Um, and God has been using uh, the book of Revelation um, to teach me, to teach me things. And hopefully you too, but we're coming to the end. And this is God saved the best for last. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 19, the return of Christ as the conquering king. And if you missed messages, you can go back on our YouTube channel or our podcast and catch those. Because last week, we looked at that when Jesus came the first time, he wore a crown of thorns. Thorns. When he comes as the, at, when he comes the second time, he's going to wear many crowns. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He's going to return the second time as a conquering king. And so that was last week. We looked at the return of Christ as the conquering king. And this week, we arrive at Revelation chapter 20, which presents a triumphant scene, but it's also incredibly sobering as humanity is judged and those that rejected Christ as their king are thrown into the lake of fire. This week, we enter the throne room together, and this scene that we're about to read should cause our hearts to tremble in the presence of the one with absolute power. We are going to see Jesus as the ultimate judge. So let's read together Revelation chapter 20. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word, and I encourage you, as always, to have something handy to take a few notes. When God, when God's Spirit illuminates God's Word, um, you want to you want to pick up that truth. You don't want to let it you don't want to let it sit on the surface because it won't stay there long. Um, the spiritual buzzards are circling every Sunday morning, and they stand ready to swoop down and snatch away uh, these nuggets of truth that God is putting on our plates, right? So meat on the table, you want to, you want to have your fork in your hand and you're ready to eat, right? You want to stab that, you want to stab that spiritual food and ingest it uh, so that the enemy doesn't have time to steal it. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. 
He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, and, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Some parts of his word are heavier than others. And we tend to avoid the heavier parts. But I want us to sit under the weight of the word. I want us to submit to the authority of his word. It's glorious, but also incredibly sobering. I feel like I need to start with a crash course in ecclesiology, in eschatology, sorry, a crash, a crash course in eschatology. Again, um, theology, the study of God, is divided up into different ologies. <laughs> and so I think every Christian should have a rock-solid theology, right? These the foundations of our faith, the pillars of our faith that aren't based on emotion, but they're based on conviction. It's not based on feelings. It's based on facts. And that's why we study God's word. That's why 
We listen to others that have studied God's word. We read others that have been given special insight into God's word. And so I feel like I want to start today with a crash course in eschatology, a rapid fire overview of the different views of Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most hotly debated parts of the entire Bible. Did you know that? That we just read um, an incredibly controversial passage of Scripture. People hold very passionate views about the return of Christ, the millennium in particular. Six times in Revelation chapter 20, the phrase a thousand years is used. And the word millennium is Latin for a thousand years. And so let me preface this crash course in eschatology by saying that people can be serious students of Scripture and end up in different places when it comes to the millennium, right? And the millennium really is one of the um, distinctions of, of eschatology, right? What you believe about Revelation 20 um, puts you in a, one or the other of different camps. But there is no liberal position and conservative position where one view has a higher view of Scripture than the others. Our eschatology, in my opinion, is a secondary theological issue. However, many elevate it to primary status and use it as a test of orthodoxy. This is, an, this is unfortunate because it creates an underlying theological arrogance and produces unnecessary division in the body of Christ. Eschatology, in my opinion, is in the open hand, right? So in the closed hand of theology, we have Christology, right? Who Jesus was, who Jesus is. We have our salvation, by grace through faith in Christ. Um, and there are a lot more things in the open hand than there are in the closed hand. Be wary of preachers that are hyper-dogmatic about secondary issues. And I have to confess that I'm often guilty of this. It's easy to cross a line when passion takes hold. When Christians when preachers, when they are, when there is an underlying posture of theological arrogance, right? We should be wary um, because God is opposed to the proud. And it is ironic how the study of theology can lead to arrogance when the exact opposite should be the result. When we study God, the more I learn about God, the more I realize how much I do not know. And so the further we go in our study of theology, there should be a correlating growth in humility because we realize that his ways are, are above our ways. And 
we have a growing awareness of our inability to fully articulate who God is, right? Theologians that slice and dice the Almighty and put him on a sh on shelves, you know, these, these uh, kind of a systematic way of understanding who God is, um, th those, those systems can be helpful, but they can also, um, they can also hinder. I believe there should always be an element of mystery in our eschatology. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, the Apostle Paul is teaching eschatology, which, by the way, we talked about this last week, right? The second coming of Christ is a major teaching of the Bible, not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible. The Old Testament called it the day of the Lord, right? Jesus talked a lot about his return. The epistles, for every one time that the first coming of Christ is mentioned, his second coming is mentioned eight times, right? So we can't ignore, and we need to repent of our neglect of this incredibly prominent biblical teaching of the return of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is teaching on eschatology in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The first part of that, though, he introduces his eschatology by saying it is a mystery. I am suspicious of any eschatology that removes all mystery. If you're able to put your eschatology in charts and graphs and in an attempt to remove all mystery, um, then to me, um, you, you've, you've assumed too much, right? You, I know that even our best efforts are going to fall short of accurately articulating the character of God. And so that should create this theological humility. We should all be suspicious of any theology that does not include a healthy dose of mystery. Secondly, our theology should always be held together by the supernatural adhesive of love. I've heard some people express their eschatology from a posture of arrogance and even anger. This is what the Bible says. And if you believe the Bible, then you're going to have this eschatology. Um, and even when we disagree, especially about secondary issues, there should be a supernatural love that flavors our convictions, that the Bible says to speak the truth in love, where I'm, I'm sharing with you what I'm learning with the realization that I have not arrived. 
that I still have a long ways to go, that my that my eschatology is under construction. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So we have some eloquent preachers that are speaking the truth, but not from a place of love. And the Apostle Paul says it's like it's like static, right? A clang, it's like a clanging cymbal, right? It's noise. If I we have people that have been especially gifted to understand um to be able to connect the dots of Scripture in such a way that helps the rest of us understand the, the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. But if we can fathom all mysteries, and if we have all knowledge, and if we have incredible faith but do not have love, we are nothing. I'm not saying we shouldn't have strong convictions. On the contrary, Right? I believe every Christian should have strong convictions that are expressed with affection. We should have a humility that tempers our passion. When it comes to eschatology, here is the one thing that every Christian must believe because it is so consistently taught throughout all of Scripture and has been so consistently believed throughout all of church history. Jesus will return, and his return will be literal, visible, and glorious. That's it. That is the essential eschatology for Orthodox Christianity. Jesus will return. And his return will be literal, visible, and glorious. And this sets up, this is Orthodox Christianity, because I, we, I believe it's so clearly taught in Scripture, and it's been so consistently believed throughout 2,000 years of church history. There are liberal theologians that try to spiritualize the return of Christ, where they say it's not literal. They say it's not visible. But the Bible is abundantly clear when it comes to what every Christian must believe to align with the teachings of Scripture and with the history of the church. With that disclaimer out of the way, let me dive into this crash course, the different views on the millennium. So the thousand years that it's mentioned six times, but it's interesting to note that this is the only place in the Bible that mentions a thousand year reign of Christ. And so we have to, we have to ask the right questions. Some of us aren't getting the right answers because we're asking the wrong questions. Some of us are, are getting different answers because we're looking through the wrong lens, right? You remember we talked about the, the different lens, like the, the different um, interpretive lens that we have to use based on the different genre, genre of Scripture. So for, 
For almost every other part of the Bible, we used a literal hermeneutic, right? So you put on a literal lens. And so you assume that it's literal unless it is obviously not. But when it comes to the apocalyptic genre, which is the entire book of Revelation, we have to stop and we have to switch gears and we have to take off our literal hermeneutic and we have to put on our apocalyptic lens that we're now reading, we're reading this part of the Bible, we're asking different questions. And when we put on our apocalyptic spectacles, we assume that it's symbolic unless it's obviously not. And this is where the different views on the millennium, uh, this is how it gets separated, right? Uh, where some people believe the thousand years is an actual literal thousand year reign of Christ. And other people believe that the thousand years is like almost every other number in the book of Revelation is symbolic. Of, of something else, of a, of a, of a sp- symbolic of a larger spiritual truth. So what are the different options when it comes to the millennium, right? And that's the first part of chapter 20, this incredibly controversial passage about the thousand-year reign of Christ. The first option is called post-millennialism. And this group believes that Jesus will return after the thousand years, and the millennium is a time of unprecedented Christian influence. The post-millennialist is wildly optimistic <laughs> about the future of humanity. According to, this, according to this belief, the world becomes Christianized through the preaching of the gospel, and this ushers in a golden age for Christianity. The church will grow and prosper and control and dominate so that Christian influence is global and total. The, the thing about the post-millennialist is they have an impressive belief in the power of the gospel to bring about real change. Perhaps the most well-known post-millennialist is the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that was a catalyst for the First Great Awakening. Much of the missions movement in the 19th century was fueled by post-millennialism. This belief that we are that we are bringing about the christianization of the world and that we are speeding the return of christ by sharing the gospel to the different parts of the world the famous missionary william carey was a post millennialist Many evangelicals, in my opinion, many contemporary evangelicals in North America are theological premillennialists, and we'll get to that in a moment, but practicing postmillennialists. I say this because of how much we want to gain control and influence so that Christian values will spread will spread through Christian leaders, will spread through Christian organizations, will spread spread through Christian politicians and Christian based legislation. 
They want the Christian worldview to conquer the secular worldview. They see it as a culture war, and they see themselves as warriors on a crusade to bring Christian values to the rest of the world. The biggest challenge, in my opinion, to post-millennialism is human nature itself and human history that flows from human nature. Post-millennialism was the prevailing view in many churches in the 19th century. And the 20th century launched multiple torpedoes that seriously damaged, if not completely sunk, this post-millennial position. The world at war multiple times, millions of people dying, the rise of communism and the, prolifer the proliferation of nuclear weapons that led to the Cold War. Humanity seems to be on a collision course, not with utopia, but with annihilation. We aren't spiritually evolving. On the contrary, we are spiritually eroding. We aren't moving towards a Christian utopia. On the contrary, we're moving towards a growing secular humanism where Christianity will be increasingly marginalized, where authentic disciples of Jesus will be targeted and persecuted. Post-millennialism, a wildly optimistic eschatology but they do have the greatest belief in the power of the gospel to not just change individuals, but to change cultures, to change society. The second position, so when it comes to the millennium, right, the first part of Revelation chapter 20, you have the, the post-millennial position, and then you have the ah-millennial position. This position states that the thousand years is to be understood symbolically. There is no literal thousand-year reign of Jesus. Jesus is reigning now, according to the amillennialists, but his reign is spiritual and inward. Several of my favorite preachers are amillennialists, preachers that I listen to almost every week. My favorite commentary on the book of Revelation is by Daryl Johnson, and he is an amillennialist. Amillennialists make a, make a strong case for the millennium being now. The postmillennialists believe that Jesus is going to be enthroned when he returns. The amillennialists believe that Jesus is already on the throne, that he is already reigning. Origen and Augustine, some of the most influential theologians in the early church, were amillennialists. Thomas Aquinas, the most influential theologian of the Middle Ages, was an amillennialist. Listen to this. Virtually all of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, were amillennialists. Um, one of my favorite 20th century theologians and preachers. This guy here, I don't know if you can see that. Kind of here, heard. I'll put the name of the book. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, incredibly gifted theologian and preacher. Um, one of the most influential of the 20th century was an amillennialist. 
the biggest challenge, so you have post-millennialism, and, and all three of these, by the way, are biblically possible. Uh, I said that at the beginning, right, that serious students of Scripture um, are in every one of these camps. You have post-millennialism and then amillennialism. In my opinion, the biggest challenge to the amillennial position is that they believe that Satan was defeated and bound at Jesus' first coming. So they believe that what we read about in Revelation chapter 20, they believe has already happened through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that Satan is in prison, right, where he's been bound up. Satan, it's very, the very first part, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until after the thousand years were ended. So they see the thousand years as symbolic of the church age and that Jesus, through his crucifixion and resurrection, has already defeated and imprisoned Satan. Um, and to me, uh, that, that is the biggest challenge to this position, uh, because you have to get into semantics of how Satan is bound, that how he is partially bound and his power and influence are somehow restricted while he is in prison. They, I think the New Testament teaches that Satan is alive and active on earth. First Peter 5, 8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So how can Satan prowl the earth? How can he be lurking, hunting like a roaring lion, like a hungry lion, if he is bound in the abyss? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So Satan is present in these churches attempting to deceive by masquerading as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So Satan is operating in the lives of individuals, energizing their sinful natures and activating their rebellion against God. In Revelations 2.13, Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. So Satan seems to be present in Pergamum in a special way. So you have post-millennialism, and the primary challenge for post-millennialism is history itself, um, or you look at the doomsday clock that they have. And we're, according to the doomsday clock, or closer than ever to annihilation. The clock isn't moving backwards. And then you have amillennialism, which believes that we are currently in the, the millennium, 
And then finally, you have premillennialism. This is where Jesus returns in power and glory before the millennial, hence pre, before the millennium. This, po this position can be broken into two different camps. You have historic premillennialism, which was held by most of the church fathers, and then you have dispensational premillennialism, which is what most of you believe. <laughs> and I say that because it's what I believed for most of my Christian life. There are two primary distinctions between historic, uh, historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, and one is the timing of the rapture. The dispensationalists believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, while the historic position holds to a post-tribulation rapture. And so you have these, this distinction in the premillennial camp, the historic view uh, that, that believes that revelation is relevant for the church because we're going to experience what it is describing, where you have the dispensational view that I, I believe struggles to make revelation relevant because we're not going to be present for any of it, according to the dispensationalist, that there's going to be a secret return, the rapture of the saints, before the tribulation occurs. And so, according to the dispensationalist, the return of Christ happens in stages. You have the first stage, which Jesus, um, Jesus comes partway down, calls up the saints, and then kind of goes back into heaven until the end where the, the second stage of his return is when he comes down and establishes um, his earthly reign and initiates the thousand-year millennium. The nation of Israel, so the first distinction in these um, two premillennial positions is the timing of the rapture. And the second distinction is the role of the nation of Israel. Dispensationalists believe that the nation of Israel plays a key part in end times prophecy, that there is a distinction, that, that there is a divine distinction between Jews and Gentiles, whereas the historic premillennialists believe that the church is spiritual Israel, which, by the way, um, this is what all of the church fathers believed. This is what, um, as far as I can tell, all of the theologians of the Middle Ages believed, and this is what all of the reformers believed. It was only in the 19th century that dispensational premillennialism really entered onto the scene, the theological scene. Um, and it's dispensational premillennialists, the dispensationalists that have that have taken Israel and made it a, a um, thermometer of prophecy. Um, and that's a that, that is a relatively new position in the history of Christianity. Dispensationalism is by far the most popular in contemporary evangelical churches in North America. This position was greatly enhanced. It started in the 18th, in the 19th century with 
um, the Schofield Reference Bible and um, different preachers that popularized uh, this this uh, dispensational position, but it really went to another level in the mid-90s with a book series called Left Behind and the movies, the Left Behind movies starring Kirk Cameron, one of my favorite theologians, the late Norm Geisler, was a dispensationalist. Most of the popular preachers in contemporary in the contemporary church in North America would fall into this category. Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, Greg Laurie, John Hagee, and the list goes on and on. I was discipled as a dispensationalist. However, I was mainly a dispensationalist by association. Honestly, I didn't really I didn't have much of an of an eschatology for the first 20 years of my faith. It was an eschatology, eschatology by association. I believe this not because I've personally researched it, not because I've personally studied it, but because the people that I respect believe this. Therefore, I'm going to adopt it. That was a summary of much of my theology, but especially my eschatology. It's only been in recent years that I have discovered that there are other solid biblical options other than dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has become so prevalent that in some churches it's seen as a test of orthodoxy, right? Where some churches even include a pre-tribulation rapture in their statement of faith, which means that none of the church fathers could have been members of that church, which means that none of the reformers could have been members of that church, which means that Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Moody could not have been members of that church. <laughs> it's crazy, right? To elevate a secondary issue, especially one that is so recent. From a historical perspective, a hundred years is very recent. So especially one that, um, that appeared in the 19th century. Um, my eschatology is very much under construction, uh, but I would currently classify myself as a historic premillennialist. Theologian, the late theologian George Eldon Ladd was the most effective, in my opinion, in articulating this position. You can, um, he has a book called The Blessed Hope. Just Google George Eldon Ladd. He's a great guy. As a matter of fact, he was a, he was a game-changing theologian, right? He, um, he introduced a concept in eschatology called already not yet, right? And it's been adopted um, very broadly where the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It is already here, but not yet complete, right? So that, that comes from the work of George Eldon Ladd. Some of the most well-known historic premillennialists are Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Moody. So that concludes the crash course on eschatology. Which camp do you find yourself in? Are you a post-millennialist? Are you an amillennialist? Are you a pre-millennialist? Or even if you're a pre, 
<laughs> Which brand of pre? Are you a dispen are you a dispensational premillennialist or a historic premillennialist? So that concludes the crash course on eschatology. But what does it all mean, right? This this has to be more than just head knowledge. What's the application of what we're studying? We are left with this question after all of that. So what? So what? Who cares, right? These uh, these debates that theologians are having in their ivory towers, uh, which which listen, I believe that every Christian should, should wrestle with these things. Right? Every Christian should be a theologian, right? We all should be students of Scripture, and we all should have strong convictions that are based on personal study of Scripture, personal research, not just, it, uh, you know, it's, it's theological laziness to just simply adopt the theology of someone we admire. So what does it all mean, though? Who cares? So what? After hearing all the different positions, it seems far removed from the struggles of everyday life. Beyond the debates over the millennium, beyond the prophetic timelines, how does this chapter impact my life? Revelation 20 is describing God's end game. This is directly relevant to the church. Remember now, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation to churches. He didn't write the book of Revelation to professors. He didn't send the letter to seminaries and Bible colleges. He sent this to real churches, real Christians in the real world. And so this truth was relevant to the original audience, and it is relevant to us too. The kingdom is consummated by the when the king returns and reigns and makes all things new, right? It's not pointless. This is what the last couple of chapters of Revelation tells us, that this isn't, life isn't random, right? That, that we're not accidents, that our lives have purpose and meaning, that all of history is heading towards this conclusion in the final chapters of the Bible. Revelation is a return to the beginning. The last few chapters of the Bible are returned to the first few chapters of the Bible. What we have in Revelation 20, 21, 22 is a restored Eden, an earthly paradise, unbroken fellowship with God and with each other in an uncorrupted creation. This has always been God's plan from the very beginning, right? The very first gospel, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, is in Genesis chapter 3. Revelation tells us that before the creation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that those who are going to be saved were written in the Lamb's book of life before creation. This has always been God's plan. The final chapters happen in front of a throne. Chapter 20 happens in the throne room. 
Daryl Johnson says, the throne is the dominant theme of the whole book. The whole drama of Revelation is played out relative to the throne. The second half of Revelation 20 is the seventh throne room scene in the book. And we are struck by the fact that all of the singing stops. This is Daryl Johnson. That all of the singing stops. All of the voices cease their shouting. They're the rainbow isn't visible anymore. Neither are the 24 thrones, not the four living creatures, not the seven lamps of fire, not nor the incense. Everything we have come to know about the throne room moves aside in order that the throne itself can occupy the whole space. Revelation 20 presents a mega throne, <laughs> the great white throne upon which sits the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we have in Revelation 20 is Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, of, each one of us may receive what is due for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Here's what we need to know. Here is the application. God misses nothing. Nothing is hidden from God. Every moment of our lives are recorded in heaven. Every human being has a, bi a biography in heaven. All of our secrets are recorded. Not just our deeds, but our motives are recorded in this heavenly biography. Things we did that we shouldn't have done. Things we didn't do that we should have done. I don't know about you, but this is a multi-volume work for me. It's not just a book. It's a library. Think about if God allows us to live 70, 80, 90 years. Think about the sins of commission, the things we did that we know we shouldn't have done, right? This is blatant disobedience. Things about, think about the sins of omission the things we didn't do that we should have done. Right? Think about when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, um, you've heard that it was said, you know, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anybody that has a lustful thought has committed adultery in their heart. I mean, come on. We're talking about sinful thought patterns. We're talking about bitterness that we are holding in our heart, anger in our hearts that Jesus said is like murder. We are murdering people in our minds. And it's all recorded. This is a terrifying thought. That's what Revelation 20 tells us, though, is that all of it is written. And God knows every detail. To see our sins played out in the presence of Jesus and to feel the, to feel the disappointment over what could have been, to feel the condemnation, and to know in those moments that we deserve hell, to be standing 
in the presence of the Lamb and to know and to accept that we deserve hell. But here's the good news. <laughs> for the Christian, listen, for the Christian, Jesus stamps forgiven on every sin in blood red, right? So I have this stamp, right? And to feel the humiliation of being exposed, completely exposed, to feel the condemnation of being so dirty in the presence of someone that's perfectly clean, right? And to know that we deserve judgment. And then for Jesus, right? For Jesus to stamp on every single sin. Can you imagine the building sense of gratitude in our hearts as sin after sin, thousands, millions of sins that are stamped with the same blood, forgiven, forgiven, page after page, Jesus is stamping book after book, volume after volume, and it's the cumulative gratitude of what Jesus has done. I don't believe we will ever fully grasp the fullness of the gospel until those moments when we know just how much we have been forgiven. No one is worthy. No one is worthy to stand in front of the throne. In Romans chapter 3, let me read this. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no one righteous. Our good deeds are garbage in the presence, in the throne room, in the presence of God. The ground is level in front of the throne. Every human being, regardless of the time in which they live, regardless of, of their ethnicity, regardless of their culture, stand in equal need of grace. Grace that can only be accessed through faith in Christ. But here's the other side of judgment. Every good thing we did for others will also be recorded. Every prayer that we prayed, every desire that we had for other people to be blessed, for other people to know Jesus, every act of kindness, good deeds done in secret will be highlighted in heaven. Not just what we did for individuals, but the ripple effect of that action through their lives. People that we've never met but have impacted through their faith, generations that we can impact, impact through one simple act of kindness, of generosity, 
and we will be rewarded for our faithfulness on that day. So listen, for every Christian, this is this is a good diagnostic of how of how much we believe the gospel. Right? This is a good this is a good test of our theology. Judgment day is not something to fear. It's something to anticipate. As we grow in our understanding of our sinfulness and God's graciousness, as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, there should be a correlating anticipation of this day in Revelation chapter 20. It's something we are working towards as we store up treasures in heaven through our good deeds done on earth. Revelation 20 ends on an incredibly somber note, (laughs) incredibly somber note. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There's no amount of good deeds that is going to earn salvation. Judgment day is coming. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. The Bible said it says it is imminent. Here's the ultimate question. Are you ready? Are you ready to stand in front of the throne of Revelation 20? Are you ready to stand in front of Jesus? Are you prepared to stand in front of the great white throne? Are you eagerly anticipating this day? 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11 since everything will be, will be destroyed in this way. This is Peter's eschatology. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Listen, as you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. When we look in the mirror and we see our own struggles, when we see our, our, our own regret, when we look out at the world and we see so much heartache and so much corruption and there's so much violence, we as kingdom people are called to look forward to a new creation when our bodies are going to be resurrected and we it's going to be like it should have been it's going to be adam and eve in the garden it's going to be he's going to make things right and he's going to make all things new and so we're looking forward to that the more disappointment that i feel in my inability to to fulfill the the spiritual potential in my own life, there's a growing anticipation for that day. And the Apostle Paul said, I would rather go right now and experience that, but it's better for you that I remain. Faithful service in the meantime. 
We're looking forward to a new creation, to a restored humanity. The only way to be ready is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We're looking forward to this in the same and a wedding is just a foretaste. It's just a small sample when you look forward to being joined with someone in that special way. The Bible says that we should, that's just a preview, right? Marriage is just a illustration of a greater truth of the relationship that we're going to have with God at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The longer I live, the more I realize my need for grace. The longer I live, the more grateful I am for the gospel. I could never work hard enough to stand in front of the throne. I could never be good enough. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. The only way anybody has any hope standing in front of the throne is Jesus Christ. When we, by grace, through faith, pledge our allegiance to King Jesus, his righteousness gets imputed to us. He takes on our sinfulness, and we receive by grace, through faith, the righteousness of Christ. And so that when God sees my sin, he has to look through his son. He has to look through the blood. So here's the primary application Place your faith in Jesus now. Pledge your allegiance to him now so that you can begin looking forward to the day when you stand in front of his throne and hear these words from your king. Well done, good and faithful servant. Every struggle, every heartache, every sacrifice will be well worth it when we hear those two words from our king. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.